0: When was it? Maybe March or April, 2021. My memory is certain that it was spring. There weren't too many leaves yet budding on the maples and oaks, but the cottonwoods were already awake and gathering light until autumn. I remember that clearly, as I was surveying my yard at the time, developing a plan to defend it against nature's usual springtime offensive. The thought arrived from nowhere between checking the oil in the lawnmower and clearing Winter's fallen twigs unconnected to whatever came before it, it was a sudden total comprehension. Unless Ethel got a transplant, she would not survive. It was that simple, that binary. Without one, there would not be the other. She may not survive transplant, of course, but she most certainly would not survive without it. There were things that could be done that might help punt the problem down the road. Infusions and treatments, sometimes hospital stays. But the road, no matter which twists and turns came first, was always going to lead to one of two places, transplant or death. Which means that the only real option for yours truly was to get Ethel to the point of transplant before my old friend Death stopped by for her. I've seen him for years, you know. He slinks into shadows that weren't there at breakfast, tapping knuckles against his scythe whenever I wake up at night. He grins at me from nowhere and everywhere. Reaches inside his cloak, blacker than a cardinal sin at 3 a.m., fingernails raking against his hideous ribcage. Offers me the edge of a razor, itself inferring not one but two ways out for me. I'm not afraid of his dread smile, of his sooty teeth and the mealworms churning in his eyes, of his Dirk Dagger teeth and their rapacious, indiscriminate appetite. And now, despite his best efforts, we're nearing the end of the first battle. Ethel is officially being reviewed to be put on the transplant list. Welcome to Stick It Out, a podcast about life, caregiving, and sometimes giving the middle finger to death. Hello everyone, I'm your host, Milton Bananas. I've been the primary caregiver to my wife for about three years now. My dear Ethel was born with cystic fibrosis. She had a double lung transplant in 2007 and is now in need of a second double lung transplant after her body began rejecting those lungs about three years ago. Today, we're going to talk about all things transplant, starting with a very broad overview of how the system works in the United States. The governing body of organ transplantation in the U.S. is known as the United Network for Organ Sharing, or UNOS. From their own about page, UNOS is the mission-driven nonprofit serving as the nation's transplant system under contract with the federal government. We lead the network of transplant hospitals, organ procurement organizations, and thousands of volunteers who are dedicated to honoring the gifts of life entrusted to us and to making life-saving transplants possible for those in need. They are the maintainers of the list. Well, it's really a database. Again, according to their own page, the database contains all organ transplant data for every transplant event that occurs in the U.S., and they monitor every organ match to ensure organ allocation policies are followed. However, it's not really UNOS who decides which patients are eligible to receive a transplant. That is most often done by a transplant center affiliated with a hospital. More on that in a second, though. The About page mentioned something called Organ Procurement Organizations. Typically not-for-profit, OPOs do a great deal of the background work in the transplant field. They are the people who get medical and social information about the deceased from hospitals and family members and help determine whether a given person's organs are viable to transplant. They are also usually the people who recover the donated organs and transport them to whichever hospital the recipient is in. Right here, feel free to imagine technicians with specially marked coolers being loaded into ambulances or vans or going through special airport security. That is one part of what OPOs do. The process of getting listed for an organ transplant depends on the organ or organs that the person needs. A fairly standard guideline is that the more critical said organ is to the functioning human body, the more pre-approval work needs to be done. As I said before, this is usually done at a transplant center associated with a hospital. It shouldn't be surprising that the most fundamentally critical organs, the heart and lungs, also affect all of the other organs. In the case of a potential kidney transplant with no other major concerns, her nephrology team would be the only team involved. But as lungs supply good old O2 to every other organ and remove carbon dioxide from them as well, someone like Ethel who needs a lung transplant will have a small circus of doctors keeping an eye on her, each for their own part of the show. But it's her lung team calling the shots. They are gathering right now, literally at the time I'm writing this, along with teams of docs from other departments, nurse practitioners and coordinators, social workers, and psych as well to discuss Ethel's candidacy. This is possibly the most important meeting of our entire marriage, at least since the meetings with the caterers and the DJ at our wedding. But unlike those meetings, neither Ethel nor I are part of this one, not even via Zoom. Ethel is there in data only, if you will. Not that some of those in the meeting don't know Ethel very well, Some have known her longer than we've been a couple, in fact. It's just weird to be on the bench for what feels like the most important game before the playoffs. Their primary considerations, simply put, are Is Ethel unwell enough to be listed, but healthy enough of body, mind, and spirit to survive transplant and recovery? That's essentially the rub of transplants. In many cases, you're trading one set of problems for a new set of problems. To give just one example, most transplant patients have to take immunosuppressant drugs for the remainder of their lives. The drugs themselves are hard on the kidneys, and many heart and lung transplant patients require kidney transplants later in life because of this. The doctors in this meeting, I can't help but imagining them right this moment, gathering coffee and something to snack on, the men tucking their ties in as they sit down, the women doing that smoothing of skirt or dress that they do, they know that Ethel will not survive without a transplant, but can she survive with one? That's what they're debating in a nutshell. How will Ethel being on the transplant list affect our lives? Most importantly, it will mean that we need to be ready at all times for a phone call followed by getting directly into the car for the drive to Pittsburgh. Every organ has a limited amount of time that it can be out of a body while remaining viable. In this case, it's about as much time as it takes us to get to Pittsburgh, with very little to spare. To put it another way, I'll have to be ready to step up to the plate at whatever moment I'm called into the game. Day, night, sun, rain, snow, fog, ice fire from the sky, impending apocalypse, or hell itself opening up with nary a Winchester brother to save our asses. I have to be ready to make that drive, make it within a very narrow window, and hope that Pittsburgh didn't rearrange itself too much in the night as it often does. And let's just say that our car is no Impala so badass it gets its own episode. There may also be trial runs. They may call with a match and We might get on our way, hell, even most of the way there, and they may call and be like, nope, never mind. maybe next time. This happens because there are more people who need organs than there are available organs. When someone who is gracious enough to be an organ donor passes away, any one of their organs may be offered up to three or four people initially. Everyone involved wants to make sure that the wholly viable heart or kidney or whatever does not go to waste, so multiple candidates are contacted. There are several reasons that one candidate may finally be accepted above the others, and all other candidates are told that this is likely to happen at least once. It can be hard to accept, though, that you're finally getting the call, that maybe soon all of this might be over, and after you spend an hour or more in the car wrestling with the weight of it, you may have to turn around and head back home. If you're lucky, maybe there's a nice diner where you can stop for an omelet, which in this podcaster's opinion, makes any difficulty easier to surmount. All of that is to say that getting Ethel on the list does not necessarily make anything better. It's like reaching the playoffs. You worked really hard to get here as a team and you're super proud of yourselves for having made it, but the season has already been long and you're tired and you're sore, and you're going to give it your all nonetheless, but you secretly worry that you don't have enough left in the tank, and the postseason stakes are always high. Win or go home. Nevertheless, here we are. There are things I've been looking forward to, though. Ethel and I will each need to have go-bags ready. Hers is already mostly set, a carry-on sized bag we call the pharmacy, and just needs to be restocked. My go bag will be trickier, as I'll have to be in Pittsburgh for maybe as long as two months. I'm not sure under which conditions I'd be able to run home for a night, so mostly I have to plan like I'm going to be on the road for a while. Just saying that out loud makes my heart squee. (laughs) There's some part of me that loves living out of a carry-on bag, that enjoys the romantic anonymity of the vagabond. I'm sure this particular instance will test my fondness for all of this, but for now, I can enjoy looking forward to it, and enjoy crafting the perfectly packed go bag. In the long term, there are a few ways it could go, but again, it's really just a binary option. Ethel makes it, or she doesn't make it. The complication is the timeline. She could survive the transplant, but not the recovery. She could survive the recovery, but maybe only achieve 50% lung function with the new lungs. She could also maybe not survive the transplant, which is more than just one surgery and, unless I misunderstood, involves leaving her chest cavity open for somewhere between 24 and 48 hours in order to give everything a good wash. Side note. Doctors have this habit. They pair together totally normal, everyday phrases with contexts in which they're really kind of horrifying. And they do it with no warning, no apology, and seemingly no recognition of it. When Ethel told one of her docs which artery they had put the stent into, he charmingly said, Oh, we call that the Widowmaker. As though I'd been asking about a particularly unhealthy breakfast option. That comment itself was nearly a widower maker right there on that clinic floor. Fucking hell. Thusly, I have no idea what a good wash means. I go between imagining docks with fire hoses trained on her at all hours and some kind of car wash type system where I line Ethel up on some tracks, put her in neutral, and kiss her good luck as the brushes descend. She could also maybe not survive until transplant just because she's listed doesn't mean she'll get the call soon it could be weeks months even years i don't know that she has years at this point i don't know that she has months if i'm being honest she might make it she might not and the timeline is anyone's guess And now for an update to the update, because oftentimes the world of caregiving changes just that fast. Before they will give their final decision, the transplant surgeon wants to have a chat with me and Ethel in person. My guess would be that he wants to make sure we both know the sort of risk versus reward context of a transplant. As this would be Ethel's second double lung transplant, there are extra risks. Plus, she's 16 years older. Though it all made perfect sense to me, it seemed to hit Ethel kinda hard. She's beginning to feel, I think, how short on time she really might be, and it felt at first like they were tacking an extra inning or two onto this final regular season game. I pointed out to her though that the surgeon wouldn't want the in-person meeting if he didn't think he could successfully perform the transplant and the transplant center staff are trying to accommodate the appointment we already have out there by folding this meeting into them. Again, not a sign that they're giving up. She saw where I was coming from, and gradually she felt a bit better. Eventually, she lied down for a nap with a cat or two to purr her to sleep. Sometimes, late at night, scrolling through the Reddit or Discord caregiving communities, I wonder about which type of caregiving is the hardest. There's probably no easy answer to that. If nothing else, the two biggest factors are the nature of a person's illness or disability and the relationship between the person and the caregiver. For example, caring for someone suffering dementia, Alzheimer's, or schizophrenia, where you can't trust the person's perception of reality, That sounds very, very difficult, I think, to most people. Then again, something as simple as driving your mother with limited mobility to a doctor's appointment once a month might be absolute hell if your mother was or still is abusive towards you in some way. Probably for every type of caregiving and every type of caregiving relationship, there are a few common stressors. Spousal caregiving is no different in that sense, I'm sure, but it has its own particular pitfalls as well. But I think it can offer at least one reward, if you can stick it out. You really learn how to communicate with each other. You learn how to get mad at each other, even high-heel boomerang upside the head furious, but carry on and stay the course anyway. You learn how to share the joy of one little victory, even though it doesn't change anything, because joy is like a bowl of fruit or, in Ethel's case, fruit snacks. You can't fill up on joy, but you can graze on it throughout the day, and it helps take the edge off when there's just too much sunlight or not enough. You learn how to listen and how to make sure you understand what's being said even if she isn't getting the words right, or even if she can't form words right now because it's too hard to cry when you have no air inside you. And you learn how to provide comfort when you cannot provide solutions. You learn that sometimes teammates let you down, that usually they've let themselves down in those same moments. And the only thing to do is to help each other dust yourselves off and hit the showers for tomorrow's game. Do you feel the same way? Do you spousal caregivers out there? Are there parts of your caregiving experience that have improved your marriage or partnership? Or am I completely full of shit, which is always possible? Drop me a line, let me know. I'm genuinely curious about how different it is for people. And now, before we wrap up today, we're gonna revisit one of our segments here at Stick It Out called Leave that thing alone. Sometimes as caregivers, we find ourselves in situations or patterns of thought that we know aren't healthy or helpful. Because we're tired and or lonely and or scared and or angry, it can be very, very difficult to leave these things alone. The last time in this segment, back in episode two, it was an external stimulus. The woman who had sold us our house many years ago sent us a little card and wrote, Have a nice summer. It rubbed me the wrong way and I wanted to raise a stink about it with her, but I didn't. Today's leave that thing alone is my own fault, which does nothing at all to help me leave it alone. You see, I've had this one Blue Jays ball cap for a while now. I admit it started to look a little weather-worn of late, a semi-permanent sweat ring and a buildup of crud around the inner brim, but well, as my Latina bestita would say, It's my ride or die, running errands, walking the dog, popping down to the in-laws for a bit, wheeling Ethel through hospitals, waiting for her at pulmonary rehab. It goes basically everywhere with me, either on my head or in the car or clipped to a backpack. Maybe because of all of this use, it somehow stored up the right kind of magic to become my rally cap. For those who don't know, A rally cap is what you put on when your team is down, when the game is important, when you most need a win at the end of however many innings it takes. You want to send all the good vibes you can to the players on the field. So you grab your rally cap like Captain America just looked at you and said, suit up. Maybe you take a minute to watch America's ass and its blue bumblebutt glory walk away from you, but you fucking suit up while doing so. That's a rally cap. I've never told her this, but somehow it became an Ethel rally cap, my talisman against the merciless clock whose ticking I can hear louder and louder every day. When out in the world, that field of blue jay blue at the upper range of my vision, it was a reminder of what I'm doing all of this for. A reminder that no matter what happens out there, I have a much more important purpose back home. Well, a few days ago, I misplaced it somewhere. I took myself out for breakfast, and I set it on the counter while I ate. I remember leaving the diner and adjusting it when the sun hit my eyes on the way out. When I got home about 5 minutes later, I put some groceries away and then talked to my friend Butterball on the phone for a little while in my studio. That slight adjustment I made when I left the diner, that's the last memory I have of it. I am not a person. Who loses things? Well, okay, yes, sometimes I lose my cool and occasionally I lose my mind. But I don't lose things. I'm the person you give things to if you don't want them lost. I most especially don't lose things I use every damn day. It's gone, though. Diner? Check. Car? Check. Studio? Check. Every cupboard in the kitchen? Check. Bridge freezer, increasingly improbable places in the house. Check, check, check. Ah, but here's what bothers me. Here's the thing I need to leave alone. What if losing the cap causes Ethel to, you know, get worse? That's dumb, of course, right? There's absolutely no way that, of all things, a fucking baseball cap might have influence over how things go with Ethel. But baseball players and fans, indeed, of sports of all stripes, are highly superstitious. That's how things like rally caps come into existence. Everyone wants to believe they have some kind of influence over what they love. And so yeah, if it was Ethel's rally cap, and if I've lost it, oh dear me, oh my, that is a mental rabbit hole laden with chicken wire and landmines. Do you have those, my friends? Do you have these long, impossibly dark hallways down which you know better than to tread? You yell at yourself like you would at a foolish character in a horror flick. Don't open that door! Or, you really should ask yourself why the dog's freaking out. Or, the one I ask the most, why are we going down to the basement again? I've ordered a new cap, same style and fit, same ever important field of blue jay blue under the brim of the cap. It won't be the same cap, but it'll have to do. Maybe it'll help me leave this particular thing alone. I don't know. That's what I'd like you to think about, especially my fellow caregivers. These mental holes you don't want to fall into, what keeps you from them when you're able to keep away? Not that we don't all sometimes end up down lonely wells of concrete thought patterns, but when you're able to keep your feet away from the mossy rocks at the edge. What is it that helps you do that? How are you able to leave that thing alone when you are? I would love to hear about that. Thank you for listening to this episode. Truly, it's not easy to keep up with a podcast while everything else is going on in our lives. But when I see that people are listening, it helps me dig deep to keep at it. If you would like to reach out, you can find me at user Mr. Milton Bananas on both Reddit and Discord. If you enjoyed this show or if you have some constructive criticism, please rate and review it in whichever app you listen to it. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Be well out there, everyone.